This week we're going to be looking at James Mangold's 1995 movie Heavy, starring Pruitt Taylor Vince and Liv Tyler, Debbie Harry. It's If I read off the IMDb listing, it's clearly the um, distributor's stroke publicist synopsis, which makes me want to be sick in my mouth. It says... Uh, the so life... yeah, it's not very kind, is it? It's a very kind of... Well, it just makes yeah. it seem like a... Well, I don't know. The, the wording is odd. The life of an overweight, unhappy cook is changed after a kind, beautiful college dropout comes to work as a waitress at his and his mother's roadside restaurant. I mean, technically, there's nothing wrong with that, but it does kind of make it seem like it's going to be a bit more happy-go-lucky than it is. Yeah, and it's kind of lowest common denominator. It's not that he's unhappy. He's just kind of stuck in a bubble, isn't he? And yeah. He needs a little bit of inspiration. And yeah, she's pretty, but that's not what she's about. It's not what her character's about. You know, it's yeah, absolutely. They sort of miss, miss the point. It kind of does everyone in it a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't make it very appealing. And actually, it's like a really good American movie about, you know, that sort of slice of life, roadside diner, the characters drifting in and out with a kind of really authentic people watching style. It's it's a really nicely crafted movie that really it's a kick in the teeth, that IMDb summary, isn't it? Mm. And it's funny, I was looking at some some Amazon user reviews, which I know is kind of only a step up from, <laughs> from YouTube comments, but I don't know, sometimes sometimes there's really, really perceptive reviews on there. But... You've given up with Pauline Kale, and now you're just looking at <laughs> Amazon user reviews. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people on there who are kind of disappointed, saying, well, I wanted the plot to go in this direction, and it didn't. It was really slow, and it, you know, it's, uh, okay, all right. But anyway, this is your first viewing, isn't it? No, no, I saw it... Um... Because you know I'm a I'm a Stallone fan. I was really looking forward to Copland, and I, I, you know I'm a Mangold fan. I think I kind of find I find him like really reliable as a kind of cinematic voice. And I think I must have tracked down Heavy around about the time of Copland because I, I definitely remember seeing it either very early in film school or on my way to film school and thinking, oh, this is the kind of movie I'd love to make. You know, it's just <laughs> you're really kind of, it's classic, classic cinema, isn't it? You know, yes, it's, it is. Just being able to step into a, a real world and look at real people and understand the, the subtle nuances of their lives, you know, it's just like, it's so good. Yeah. So, yeah, but I haven't seen it since. I haven't seen it in 20 years, so... I was I was happy when you suggested it, and uh, yeah, like I say, I've kind of followed Mangold all the way through, and whenever I see him attached to something, it always just elevates it. Mm. You know, it's expect the level of expectation that it's going to be good just by knowing that he's involved. I think there's a conversation to be had between us later on in this about Mangold and Copland and his career overall. Yeah, I saw this completely by chance back when it was released because I used to work with a group of really nice people back then in the mid-90s. Um, we used to go for drinks after work. And then, because we are in central London, if there was a film that somebody wanted to see, we'd, you know, we'd often go in a small mm. group or a pair. And there's a woman I work with who wanted to go and see this, which I guess because it has Evan Dando in it and it's got Debbie Harry <laughs> yeah, in sure. it. Soundtrack by Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth, which ticked all her boxes. Yeah, yeah, it's a really ni 90s kind of ensemble, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? So I went along um, to see it. Um, she was drunk and she fell asleep, but I absolutely love the movie from start to finish. Um, <laughs> I think I might have gone to see it again. And then I bought it on VHS, one of those big, chunky, grey, artificial eye VHSs. Mm -hmm. um, and then on DVD in America. But yeah, when we... You know, when you came up with these podcasts with the mandate for lesser known movies, I thought that would be a good opportunity to revisit. Well, here we are. Yeah, here we are.
It's also our season finale, so it's a nice one to close out season two with. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, in the mid-90s, there's a lot of kind of indie movies are about guns and robberies and things like that, but this is your kind of perfect archetypal chamber piece independent film, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's all about character and nuance and detail and... and I, it's kind of like a little mini masterpiece and for a first movie he did get kind of best director at Sundance for this didn't he yeah that's right um it's it's shockingly good yeah it has um, all those kind of character details that I was trying to think of comparisons and in the end I sort of gave up with movies and just went to like Raymond Carver and Bukowski and you know the kind of uh, those authors that they have the time to observe those details in literature, which you don't often see with the kind of breakneck pacing of indie cinema. You know, when I was going through this scene by scene, I was just making notes of the little threads so that if we started pulling on stuff, I was able to remember where it kind of began and ended. And I took a pause to make a cup of tea and I was a page of notes and I was only 22 minutes in because there's so much kind of little character detail that just washes over you when you're viewing passively. But when you're kind of dictating uh, the notes based on every single kind of important picture, then, yeah, you really see the the mastery of the storytelling. I, I did exactly the same thing. I think it's one of my notes. I was going through it kind of, you know, when you're doing your first notes, you're just kind of listing what's happening and how it seems to fit together. But it's just one of my first notes on page one is, um, well, I mean, my, my larger point is that this is an absolute, it's just a model of storytelling economy. Mm. And it's weird because it's only like a, a, a 100 minute movie and, you know, people complain that, oh, it's a slow movie, but it's but it's not. It's like within five minutes, you've nailed all of the characters without any exposition. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah all their mad. relationships, yep. all, you know, their entire situation stretching back decades. Um, and it's all nailed within, you know, five minutes. And I've got another note further on, 30 minutes in and all the relationships between all the characters are set. You know, this is this is yeah, yeah. absolute brilliant not textbook because that suggests kind of rote and boring but it's absolute how to do this structuring mm. and storytelling it's yeah and you can see how uh you know he's he seems like he's really good with the the cast as well because you know the performances do a lot of the work and you can see why that sets up his career of working with just you know quality actors and mm. you know he must be a very attractive director for cast to come to just because of this style of working this kind of body of work that's all about character detail i think it's worth talking about him as a person i mean i don't know obviously as a person but as a director i get i get the feeling that because he started very young he was he's kind of very confident and that he's a very kind of outgoing open friendly person and i think that kind of must factor into how well he works with actors yeah i was trying to piece together his career and it it seems like before he went to film school he'd secured a writer director deal at disney well no you went to cal arts first apparently and then he got the disney deal and then after the disney deal didn't take him anywhere he went back to new york to columbia film ah, school okay, okay then he was at columbia and entered under milos foreman yeah he had alexander mckendrick at cal arts and <laughs> milos foreman in columbia so okay that's great that's do. a really, yeah, really that... good kind of classical mentoring isn't it yeah that's it yeah and whilst he was at columbia he that's where he was developing heavy and copland the original copland script and heavy's based on a classmate of his who was overweight and whose mother owned the local diner. I did not know that. Yeah. All right. And then, obviously, after Heavy wins in Best Director at Sundance, he's straight into the corporate world with um, Copland, 
which was a bit of a disaster in terms of a production, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a mess. And yeah, you just feel like that with the Weinstein's involvement as well, like that article I sent you, it just seems mm. like they had their hands all over the, the edit. And, you know, it was one of those movies famously that I'd seen the trailer probably 50 times before I saw the film. So I knew the trailer inside out and there's loads of scenes missing from the film that are right. in the trailer. And I was always like, there's got to be another version out there. But it's kind of never really appeared. So I remember reading at the time, there's, I think the original script was about a third longer. There's an entire act missing at the end of it, which was never shot. Oh, right. Okay. Which is why it kind of ends quite with a bit of a whimper. Yeah, I remember them being reshoots um, and those being kind of widely publicized. And there's something about De Niro's moustache, isn't there? He's gone from the his Copland moustache to his uh, Jackie Brown moustache. Yeah, and I was pretty underwhelmed with um, Copland when it came out. It all seemed pretty third-hand to me and there was nothing in it that grabbed me at all. And it did feel like a massive disappointment. It felt kind of really clumsy and lumbering after heavy sure so i kind of tuned out of james mangold at that point and i've never really tuned in again i mean it's interesting that you say that you find him an interesting voice in cinema i just at this point i find him a really really good safe pair of hands rather than anything else oh i really liked uh identity i think that was what kind of oh i hated yeah. that i absolutely I really loved it, <laughs> it was, i, thought, I think that was really was, clever and sort was, of twisty and yeah that was the nail in the coffin for me actually because I, I never saw girl interrupted I've, I've never fancied that at all yeah i saw that and and liked it yeah and i didn't see kate and leopold no i didn't but see I did see identity and absolutely despised it what about walk the line yeah I, I seem to remember seeing it but i don't know if i'm getting it mixed up with with ray or something <laughs> okay yeah sure i think i've seen I, it but i don't know oh my god what about 310 to yuma come on that's yeah like, that's yeah. that's a modern classic it's okay this is where it, this is where it's like none of his films are classics i feel none of them you know that's a come that's on. a remake and it's quite good it's brilliant 310 to yuma it's so good i think it's, it's not it's no it's, not it's not thing. okay it's think, really good it's really good 310 to yuma that's i think like, it's i think it's okay i think it's i think it's quite good and i think logan's quite good and you know when i get around to watching ford versus ferrari it's excellent yeah everyone it's says excellent. it's excellent i'm sure i'll think it's really good but none of these are kind of <laughs> None of these films feel like they have like a voice. They just feel like really, really well-made, old-fashioned movies. And I say that in the, in a good sense. Yeah, that's it. But that's that's its appeal. I think you know you're getting like classic stories told with a kind of classic cinematic style and really kind of detailed performances that just enrich the viewing experience. I think you know, in in the world where we have you know really kind of disposable cinema to get somebody that can craft a movie that really stays with you and keeps you talking and makes you sort of you know 310 to humor is one of those that I, I wanted to phone my uncle straight away who loved westerns and be like you have to see this and you know ford versus ferrari i know a couple of petrol heads and it, as soon as i'd seen that i was like oh have you guys seen this it's so good you know i think his films definitely have that the way that i describe him, i'm not saying that in a derogatory way it's like i will watch the movies and i'll really enjoy them but it's it's not something that i kind of seek out and it just seems, I know, I know that I should kind of rebalance this in my head, but at the time it did seem a bit disappointing that after something that was kind of like, felt like it was an auteur movie, like Heavy, that that it's basically been very, very well-tooled mainstream. Verging on product sometimes, you know, Logan is good and it's really watchable, but it is still just kind of like a mainstream recycling of superhero comics, albeit dark ones. 
I don't know. But on a positive note, you know, you're outrageous. You're this. On a positive note, you said that. If he ever gets attached to like a franchise movie, like he's supposed to be doing Indiana Jones Five, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's that's happening. Perfect pair of hands for it. And there's a novel by Don Don Winslow. I think his name is. It's a novel I read on holiday a couple of years ago called The Force. Oh, the police thing. Yeah, he'd be perfect for that. Absolutely brilliant for that. And I hope that happens. Yeah, for me, when I see you know the uh, any film that's kind of coming up, you know, I read the outline, and then if I see his name attached to it, I get an extra level of expectation of quality. And I think for me, that's what he brings—that expectation of quality. Like I know it's going to be a really well-crafted, watchable film with some cinematic flourishes. And I think this has it. You know, I think Copland does Three Ten to Yuma for sure. Night and day. And <laughs> I skipped that. I didn't even put it on my list. That you know, yeah. I, I don't even know if I've seen that, but uh, I'm sure it's watchable. <laughs> yeah, I've you know I've cherry picked. I haven't put like everything on there. Yeah. Same with Kate and Leopold. I read the outline. I was like, what the hell is that? And you're a big fan of Logan as well, aren't you? That was that was a good one for you. Yeah, I've seen it. I, I did um, uh, all the X Men films on Disney Plus, and then. Uh, filled them in with my little boy um, who's nine um, and I kind of I'd forgotten how brutal Logan was so I, I was I remember they obviously died in the end and so I thought that was going to be the, the big trauma and actually as it starts it's like really brutally violent and loads of swearing so I had to kind of we had, we had to watch it with a sort of explanation all the way through. Like, don't forget, it's just a film and, mm. you know, it's not real. And, you know, that's the guy from The Greatest Showman, don't forget. He sings songs and likes to dance as well. You know, he's just playing a character. And, uh, yeah, I, well, I couldn't turn it off, otherwise I'd be lynched. But, yeah, it was, um, it's it's pretty brutal. But I think it's excellent. I think it's, you know, yes, it's a comic book movie, but I think it's, again, as aspiring to create a character that you really kind of are massively invested in by the the time you get to the end and i think a lot of movies struggle with that you know even non-comic book movies to you know really draw you into it i think yeah it's excellent so should we talk about some of the people involved yeah let's do it so uh it has debbie harry it's tricky to work out what she's acted in and what she hasn't obviously there's this and videodrome stick in my mind but then you look on imdb yeah and imdb does that really annoying thing where they they count music videos as as credits yeah, yeah. and i think they really should have a separate subsection for that or a separate kind of listing because uh, she's got 102 titles on imdb and it's really difficult oh, right, to okay. filter out what actual films there are yeah i, I can't remember seeing her in, in anything other than this in videodrome apparently she's credited in copland as playing a waitress called dolores it's very much an in-joke isn't it yeah she's really good though isn't she yeah she is really good i think Liv tyler brought her to the production didn't she really from yeah because they were friends through uh Steven Tyler's uh, Aerosmith uh, rock and roll days. Yeah, she she's about, I guess, late 40s, turning 50 at this stage. She? Yeah, she's that sort of fading beauty, isn't she? You know, once kind of center of attention in a small town and now mm. kind of on the margins, threatened by the beautiful young waitress that comes to work beside her. Yeah, it's nice. She, do, she does a really good job and nice that that is left unchanged by the end of the film. It's not like she's gone through any massive massive uh, revelations she's still a bit catty and still very lonely 
and Liv Tyler, I guess, was pretty much this. This must be a kind of breakthrough movie, isn't it? So it's, it's a debut. Apart from the music video she did for Aerosmith, I think she was doing a little bit of modelling. Mangold did a taped audition and was just like, "Yeah, she's she's the one." She's really, really good, isn't she? Yeah, she's brilliant, and you know, she does have a kind of classic film star beauty but also like she's so normal looking at the same time do you know what i mean she's just like a, a slightly more attractive normal person than a kind of really glamorous movie star the performance is is really nice and i do like the fact that the film gives the character some time as well it's not just i guess we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later but it's not just kind of her as seen through thick's eyes no no she totally has her own life and you know her own kind of questions on her direction and the mistakes that she's making you know you feel all of that weight of her life alongside all the other characters that's what makes this such a a great movie is that everybody in it feels real you know and you like you said before you know you get everything about them almost instantly i really like the way that in in each of her scenes even though they're brief and this is primarily victor's story it, it gives her some sort of moments of empowerment there's the bit where she's um, waiting for her boyfriend to finish work at the garage and she's kind of looking out the window and there's another guy oh, yeah. in a truck just kind of stripping off his top and putting a different T-shirt on. It gives her kind of like her own moment of sexual interest in someone else. Yeah, 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 that's it. Dare I say the female gaze, you yeah. know, like she is. Yeah, she, yeah, she just definitely has. Uh, it's nice because she has an uncertain confidence. It's like she knows that this isn't everything, but she doesn't know how to get where she wants to be yet either so yeah yeah i i think it's a brilliant brilliant character i guess we'll tick off all the cool names first there's a soundtrack by thurston moore from yeah, sonic, youth. sonic youth yeah i was quite surprised that he doesn't seem to have any other kind of narrative film soundtrack work he's done some documentary yeah. stuff but i mean he's i guess he's, he has other things going on in his life but... yeah just based you know i know you're very particular about music but for me i was like oh this is it just really works it was you know it seemed effortless and mm. really did its job is evan dando a known quantity for you i mean i know who he is um from the Lemonheads, mm. but uh and uh a friend of mine, she's obsessed with him and has like painted him and all sorts. So I kind of know him as a friend's weird obsession. Mm. Um, but yeah, apart from that, no, you know, I don't think I've ever seen him in, in the film. Um, no, I, um, I, I, I'm exactly the same. I know who he is and a friend of mine who would, who was a regular barometer for the, what was going on in the world of mainstream indie in the early and mid nineties used to like the lemon heads but beyond that it's it's just yeah i know the name he's okay yeah. in this isn't he he's all right he's yeah, good at being yeah. a, a, good at being a dick yeah 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 it's sort of believable as a small town mechanic as well you know sort of doesn't or he thinks he's uh you know a musician wants to be out of the small town you kind of get his his whole story and it's all convincing yeah i mean there's not that much for him to do other than just be kind of annoying on the peripheries mm. He's, you know, he's handsome. He's got a nice face. I can see why the ladies like him. Yeah, I did like the way that it kind of um, it it gave him gave him some musical stuff to do in the film. That kind of it was quite mocking of it. So yeah, I, yeah, I did like Kelly's yeah. like. Do we have to listen to this like the ninth time we've heard this song tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not giving him any feedback, and it has that. Um, it almost sounds like that song uh, David Bowie sings in extras. Where he's taking the piss out of Ricky Gervais, like little fat man. He's making up some song, isn't he, about Pruitt Taylor Vince's character Victor? 
And Shelley Winters, um, who surely she could have been doing this in her sleep, which is not to criticise the performance, which is absolutely pitch perfect. Apparently Mangold uh, tracked down her home address and sent her the script with a written letter mm. saying why he wanted her. And two days later, she was like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that story about her um, Pruitt Taylor Vince feeling like she was kind of treading all over his performance? No, no. Yeah, so obviously he's quite understated and, and she's quite theatrical, quite larger than life. And I think a few days in, he went to, Pruitt Taylor Vince went to Mangold and was just like, look, man, she's she's destroying my performance. She's all over the place and she's really offensive and, you know, I'm not sure how to deal with it. And so Mangold had to speak to her and she called Pruitt Taylor Vince onto set in front of the whole cast and crew and listed all the people she'd worked with, like Gene Hackman and Kubrick, and said that she'd insulted all of them, and now he joins a very illustrious list of Hollywood A-list that she's insulted. And apparently that was enough to, you know... To quiet him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, and then off they went. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that feeds into the into the film perfectly, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, all, it's all about how somebody's been been stepped on not not maliciously well, but he's smothered by his mother yeah, isn't and, and she? held back and and yeah there's that brilliant scene where um uh Liv tyler says that he should go to kind of chef school mm. and just develop his skills and his mum you know it, it sort of in a backhand compliment is like you know he doesn't need to go and pay lots of money to learn something he already knows you know he's he's already the best cook in town you know it's just and he's yeah he's just not allowed off the leash is he mm. So just one last note on Shelley Winters. While I was looking at her career, I stumbled across a website that she's done so many movies, basically, that there's a website that has an article dedicated to nine movies in which Shelley Winters dies in the middle. <laughs> That's how many movies she's done. And, you know, it's Gatsby, Night of the Hunter, Poseidon Adventure, Lolita, mm. this. And I was just like, wow, imagine having like such a broad CV that you can actually, that's like a, a subsection of, of your career. She's like a kind of prototype Sean Bean in that respect, isn't she? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was interesting because we watched Possessor at Christmas. Oh, yeah. And Sean Bean's in it in a supporting role. That you, oh, yeah, know, okay. that you know is so going to die start halfway the, through. Start the clock. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a footnote, when I was doing my IMDb research, that um, that Joe Grafasi, one of one of his earlier roles, is that he's the band leader in The Deer Hunter. Oh, really? You know, in the long wedding sequence at the beginning, it's, yeah, it's yeah. quite a funny little supporting role because he's he's kind of like, you know, getting quite handsy with one of the guests and yeah, causing yeah. fights and stuff. It's a really, really good character part. I didn't recognise him from that. No, I didn't recognise him from anything. In fact, I've, I even forgot to research him. <laughs> He's such an unlikable character in this, isn't he? And, yeah. You know, it's a, a strength of the film that they don't ever soften that. Like, even right at the very end, the last shot of him in Debbie Harry's bed, you're still like, oh, I still don't like that guy. <laughs> you know, they don't do any... any. There's no attempt to redeem him at all for the audience. And finally, Pruitt Taylor Vince. Yeah, he's so good in this. This is the first time I'd seen him, and it was obviously it was bitterly disappointing in subsequent years that he's so often cast as psychopath or... yeah. His work seems so effortless, and he does so much with so little dialogue and exposition here. It's, it's all kind of internal, and it's all kind of through expression and body language. And Yeah, that's it. Just tiny flickers at the corner of his mouth, and it just feels like his expression changes. I don't know how he does it. It's like a, it's a, it's an incredible face, isn't it? And it's not a one-note performance throughout, because there's very, very kind of subtle changes in Vic's character throughout. You know, there's, there's a point after his mother's died where he... Hmm. Where he feels backed into a corner by by circumstance, and he, he you know he does start to find his own strength. 
through through his mother not being there to take the rudder. Yeah, that's it. The, the, the point where um, Dolores and Callie are being their disagreement kind of comes to a head, and he, he you know he manages to find his voice, but it's just just such subtle changes to bring that out. Mm, mm. It's not it's not an explosive scene or you know a, a big scene of finding yourself. It's just you know he's... no no, and even the the one time that that does happen, there's a point towards the end where he sort of sweeps everything off the bar in kind of self disgust and anger, and that's like oh he probably could have got away with not even doing that you know the point where he sees his own reflection is enough but you know it adds a little bit of drama but you think of the range of emotions that the character goes through from kind of you know passive to uh, you know active role in his own life the joy the pain the you know the the uh, remorse and sadness he does all of that with a kind of carefully modulated performance and a, a very um like his face is very transparent you know you're able to get his internal feeling without too much uh, histrionics they'd originally approached black francis to play the character yeah and um uh, he didn't want to do it and then a friend of mangold's was working on nobody's fool and was like oh you should see this guy he's really good and that's how pruitt taylor vince came to get involved yeah i was really surprised how far back his cv goes like it's the same with um john c Riley. oh yeah okay you know, and you think, okay, well, John C. Riley, I kind of date him as kind of mid-90s onwards, but you realise he's been working since, you know, the mid-80s. You look at Pruitt Taylor Vince, he's got, like, bits and pieces in early Alan Parker movies. He's in Wild at Heart, which I don't remember at all. Yeah, I saw that on the IMDb. I was like, okay, next time I watch that, <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for him. Jacob's Ladder, JFK, uh, and yeah, Nobody's Fool. I'm surprised that that penny didn't drop when I was watching this again. Uh, Vin Vendor's The End of Violence from... 97 identity which was a big disappointment for me because it wasn't was he a, a twitchy psychopath in that yeah yeah sure yeah um i don't remember him in nurse betty which i'd quite like to watch again actually that was really funny and obviously he has a, a magnificent role and a fantastic performance in deadwood you skipped uh, natural born killers i <laughs> did skip natural born killers in life and in this podcast uh, um, and he also had a really good supporting role in the second season of um the Walking Dead, where he played Otis. Oh, okay. Tragically betrayed by Shane. And there's um, let's talk about you know the the less famous people involved. Um, the director of photography, Michael Barrow. It's like really remarkably good work in this. I mean, I guess it's just the way it goes sometimes. But there's nothing remarkable on his on his CV since then. Yeah, yeah. Unless there's you know gems in there that that we haven't seen. But I don't know. I just I just think it's staggering that somebody can do work like this, which feels so natural and feels so much like it's you know available light and just capturing mood yeah that's it no, i was going to say the same with the editor you know when you like you say you look at the cinematography and the cut and you think wow this is all so well crafted that these people must be you know really established now in the kind of a-list and you know both have solid careers but you just wish that it was work that was more kind of prominent i guess yeah i'd, I'd say a third of this movie is is the performances um and then you know, another third of it is cinematography, but then the third third, I think, is is the locations and art direction. And the art director, um, Michael Shaw, this is his second movie, but the art direction on this is just exquisite, isn't it? All yeah, of the I mean, everything feels real. Yeah, everything feels like it's lived in. Everything, like the, the house that they choose for Victor and Dolly to call home with their, their dog kicking around, it's just like, you can see the dust and the 
corners that they haven't cleaned and you know maybe they just found a space that was perfect but yeah it feels really lived in and homely yeah and i'm sure with with you know pete and dolly's with the bar i'm sure there was a bar that they could find that that ticked most of those boxes but then you've got stuff towards the end you know you've got the the final shots where you see the main characters in situ and you've got uh, Callie's bedroom yeah yeah which which looks like uh, obviously it's it's kind of all the childhood stuff that she's growing out of and is, is feels confined mm. by but the the level of detail in there that like all yeah, the little yeah. objects and bits and pieces and toys and and yeah, yeah, but that mirrors a shot that they do of Victor's bedroom about halfway through the film after he, his mum has died, and there's a, a kind of slow pan through his space, and it's his kind of old comic books and his old toys, and I saw one review that was saying, oh, what kind of a man has a fire faucet poster on the wall? It's like, well, he put it up when he was a boy, you know, and that's the point, and the same with Callie's room, you know, there's all these other characters projecting so much onto oh uh, she's marrying material somebody else says or you know and, and the boyfriend just treats her like a sex object you know and all of these things and she is just as really a teenager she's a child just moving into adulthood and all these other people and i uh, want so much more from her and i think that the point of her room is like you know she's just a kid and and so is he at heart you know that's them just kind of slowly starting to find their place in the world and you know everyone else should just back off and give them some space to grow mm. oh, it's great that um that michael shaw is one of the people involved in this who went on to have a really really solid career i didn't um, check what else has he done well there's lots and lots of movies the one that that came up for me was uh kenneth lonergan's first movie you can count on me which is another kind of small town thing but now he's doing um production design for like ongoing series like billions and orange orange is the new black all right cool. so he's yeah. like really solidly settled in yeah good we're going to sort of talk through the film but the, the opening of the film like flags up one of the things that makes this such a, a lovely film in addition to all the great kind of performance and and the work that the actors do i'm struggling to put it into words and i'm going to refer to something that it reminded me of you get the opening of the movie is uh, the sound of a plane passing overhead, which reminded me instantly of a really, really perceptive joke by Douglas Adams and John Lloyd. Did you ever read the book, uh, The Meaning of Lift? No. It's basically Douglas Adams and his producer, John Lloyd, put together this book. It's a dictionary of things that there aren't words for. It's, it's basically a comedy book. It's yeah, okay. very, very, very good observational a, stuff. A comedy um, dictionary. Yeah. So there's one of their words is Hambleton. Uh, which is, and I'm quoting this, the sound of a single-engine aircraft flying by, heard whilst lying in a summer field in England, which somehow concentrates the silence and sense of space and timelessness and leaves one with a profound feeling of something or other. There's there's a bit of Hamilton at the beginning of this film and at the end as well. It's just kind of that <laughs> yeah, timelessness of a, a plane passing overhead and the stillness of the atmosphere and just setting the scene in that way. Yeah, but it's the perfect uh, metaphor as well, isn't it, for these small town lives that are going nowhere. Mm. Meanwhile, people are jetting overhead in all different directions to all different places you know it's it's not a sprawling epic you know the planes remind you that you're kind of down in this little microcosm this tiny little world in fact it's a microcosm within a microcosm isn't it the roadside diner within a small town but it's that slightly trippy thing it's a bit drugstore cowboy as well that has kind of like that kind of gives a very slightly psychedelic trippy edge to everyday life the boredom of everyday life mm. So we, we see Pete and Dolly's diner, uh, Dolores arriving for work, um, Dolly 
the Shirley Winters character interviewing Callie, which is Liv Tyler's character, and Dolores watching jealously. Um, Victor is in the bathroom scrubbing the word sluts that somebody has nail varnished onto the mirror there. Yeah, but all these little gags they pay off as well. That's that's again what's really nice about the film. You know, all of the everything that you see and hear now is layered in to resonate later on. It's it's so good. Dolly's interviewing Callie, who's dropped out of college, and she just says to her, you know, not everybody is supposed to go to college. Like it's this sort of thing that's been mythologized in culture, and <laughs> it actually is a kind of indulgence and maybe even unnecessary for mm. most people. You know, I, I like the way she's so dismissive of education mm. and as i said before you know within within this first five minutes you have nailed the four central characters of the movie mm. it's it's brilliantly done what happens next you kind of play out what must have been the ongoing routine for years and years and decades victor cooks the pizzas and the food in the evening and then you see the kind of wild card aspect that callie's added when when she starts to kind of um, interact with victor and they're playing cards together after we've established kind of like the nighttime routines, um, you have a morning scene with Victor making breakfast for his mother, um, driving to the store, that sort of thing. Yeah. You get to see some of the, the kind of location. This is all upstate New York. Yeah, it's really nice. But I find it really weird. Like, this is the fourth time in the last three or four months that I've seen something which is set in, in upstate New York or somewhere similar, sort of semi-rural America. Mm-hmm. That looks like this and feels like this and the location is supposed to be quite kind of quite stifling and quite boring and usually the characters that you're seeing there are young and feel yeah feel they want to move on but you look at these places and you think this is the most idyllic place in the world i want to live <laughs> here i want to retire and you know, sure sure my wife and i are watching these things going this just looks stunning and it's not just that it's <laughs> photographed nicely it's just that yeah they look lovely totally i i get i get what you're saying but i still i can put myself in the shoes of a young person and think oh my god yeah i can imagine how frustrating that would be especially in america where it's all about like lifestyle and it feels like you're treading water then yeah i, yeah, I can imagine it'd be not so not so idyllic i'm i'm avoiding the temptation to just kind of read through scene by scene what happens but um again i've got you know my notes at the end of 30 minutes all the relationships and characters are set um and i think that like the beginning of air quotes act two is that that moment between victor and his mother where he realizes you know he's, he's beginning to become a bit self-conscious about his appearance because suddenly he's found a reason to be self-conscious yeah yeah um oh then, my god there's that moment where he steps on the scales and it yeah. goes all the way around I've, I've had that experience a few times and it's a shocker so i was definitely empathizing with him yeah and it's the, it's that kind of quiet moment of realization that, that his mother tries to quash you know he says i'm i'm fat ma and she's i mean it was very i thought the lines that they gave shelly winters were very funny you're not fat you're 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 husky <laughs> husky yeah i know it's really nice i've and i've no joke i've actually this is obviously with with a child but i've witnessed a parent do that um mm. i think it was it was like when i was 10 or 11 somebody that i knew who was a year older was was a big a big kid i mean he was He's quite big. Yeah, yeah. But I remember his mum saying, no, no, he's just big boned, like literally using those words. Yeah, sure, sure. And it's that kind of maternal blindness that doesn't do the child any Oh, favors. yeah. I mean, I have to say, it's like having two boys that are quite fussy with their food. I think if you had a child that just ate 
you know mm. voraciously had a huge appetite and just ate all the time there's a certain joy you get as a parent from knowing <laughs> yeah, that I, they're, I am they're, nourishing they're this fed. child yeah, yeah so the bigger they get the more kind of uh the more you've achieved the better a parent you are i could see quite easily how people get in that groove mm. the this kind of the sequence of events goes from the um kind of confrontation the i'm i'm fat thing to Vic going to the store to get some of the the diet mixture that he's. Well, he he's walks seen. as well, doesn't he? He doesn't take yeah. the car; he walks. So this is him starting his kind of new, new routine. Mm. What I loved about that was the clothes that he was wearing. It's so nineties, and it's the clothes that I'm still wearing now. He's got tracksuit bottoms, like some trainers. Um, they're like uh, ankle boot trainers, and then he's got his grey tracksuit bottoms, and then a t-shirt, a shirt. And then he's got his sort of plaid shirt jacket thing over the top of his sweatshirt. It's just like, oh my God, am I still dressing like I'm in the 90s? Yeah, but if you're outside of fashion like Vic, then those are just classics. Like Leo's yeah. also wearing like a plaid overshirt and stuff. It's just mm. it's just what you wear, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Outside of fashion. That's, mm. that's how I'll describe myself <laughs> in future. There's a really nice sequence of events. You know, um, he goes to the store and the dog goes missing, I should say. Uh, and then he's making his way home. And you get the. There's only one thing in this movie that makes me uncomfortable now, and I wonder if we need it, which is the Vic's kind of fantasy interludes about Kelly. Yeah, it's kind of the um, like hero fantasy, isn't it? The mm. uh, the the rescuer fantasy, which is, you know, it's a very male wish fulfillment type thing, isn't it? To be needed to be the rescuer to save somebody's life. Yeah, I. But they continue throughout the film. She just kind of wanders in because the the images that she's you know, possibly drowned and he runs down and rescues her and gives her the kiss of life. But then in the same kind of costume, she wanders in and out of scenes at moments throughout the film. And I don't, I think the film wouldn't be any the worse off without them. Yeah, I liked the first one. I, I thought the others were kind of unnecessary, but also I think maybe it's something about him slightly misjudging the fact that she doesn't need saving. You know, she needs direction, but she's not in peril. You know, she doesn't need anybody else to guide her life she just needs to find it on her own and maybe that's why you know ultimately they can't get any further than they do in their relationship mm. i like the way that the first one from the bridge kind of leans into the sort of furtive sexuality of it you know it's kind of shot looking up her skirt a bit and there is because you know within each of these male fantasies there is like a, a sexual undercurrent you know you want to mm. rescue this girl because you want her to have to want to have sex with you yeah, that's I like, I like to, be, to be of, grateful. Yeah, I like the way it kind of leans into that. And it uses the plane overhead to drift in and out of this fantasy as well, which I thought was yeah, a really, really nice good. touch. And, you know, it's the same bridge where he sees them kissing uh, on his way to the store when he's driving and then he's walking with the dog. And, you know, he's on, it's the same point where he sees her in the water. I just think I love all, all of the kind of the echoes. The The girl that's working in the store is drinking the kind of light and healthy milkshake or whatever it is that is the diet drink that he then starts drinking that you see also advertised on the tv and at the hospital and you know that that brings us all the way back to the end of the film when he kind of has an enough confidence to engage in a, another conversation with her you know all of these little incidental details all kind of pay off later on is yeah I'm just saying the same thing I keep saying but it's like it's really detailed and really clever and really well made and really good kind of storytelling I, I, yeah, I really appreciate it Dolly falls ill um, and Vic 
and this is all very kind of elliptical. Vic comes home and finds her, and then we cut to him in hospital, um, and starts to withdraw into himself when he's faced with having to make decisions for himself. There's that there's that scene with the the nurse asking him, you know, basic questions, and he can he can. Mm. He can't really bring himself. Uh, yeah, she's saying you can stay or you can go, and he sort of half stands up and half sits down and doesn't know what to do, does he? It's uh, yeah, he's he's really yeah not in control of his own decisions. Obviously, it's it's something that's fed into him. <laughs> no pun intended. That's fed into his life throughout, you know, for, for years and years. But he's a comfort eater, and you can see him, you know, eating candy bars at, at this stage. Yeah, I yeah. I really like the fact that the film portrays comfort eating you know not in a kind of exploitative no it's not grotesque bulimic, is it? grotesque it's, way it's not it, something exactly. he's not gorging himself and vomiting or anything it's no, just you're really, it's just something yes. you do in the background and it's as yeah, somebody, it's really compassionate you know, we've just you know we've just come we're recording this at the point where i think everyone's had a very very difficult year and i've come to understand comfort eating as something that's not you know not to be sneered at or dismissed or thought of oh, as no, grotesque totally. as you say yeah and the fact that he hides donuts behind the cleaning products <laughs> like, i can relate to that <laughs> yeah I, I i went for a long walk the other day on a day that was supposed to be a diet day um having had a frugal breakfast and i, I was having a, a tough morning so i had a greg sausage roll and a donut <laughs> whilst i was walking yeah, and i good. thought you know comfort eating is is you know, it's not to be sneered at. The scenes in the hospital are just stunningly well. I mean, it must have been scripted this way, but it feels like it's just cut together beautifully. Sort of short little elliptical moments that that all pack a punch. But it does have that sort of surreal tone that being in a hospital after hours, yeah. you know, that when... kind of heightened awareness through anxiety, but in such a quiet, dead antiseptic yeah, space. Yeah, exactly. When my mom was in hospital for a few weeks before she passed away and, you know, I went to visit, you know, every other day and it, you know, you're there at like strange hours and these empty echoing corridors and mm. yeah, it's, it's really, really bizarre space to be in. I think they really captured that. I loved, um, uh, the gray man that he's written as in this, in the script, mm. but, uh, David Patrick Kelly uh, you, you might recognize from films such as <laughs> the warriors and commando you know you forget he's actually like a really kind of decent actor as well and he mm. just in that tiny cameo where he's saying about the uh the woman that's supposed to be serving food in the canteen he's he's like you know you're you're, you're just like me you know you're big and nobody sees you mm. i'm loud and nobody hears me you know just that sort of and then we see him later on, don't we? Where he's kind of he seems to be convulsing on a gurney or something. Yeah, he's, just, he's in his last those, place, isn't he? Yeah, really great kind of earthy cameo of somebody that you just meet briefly in life. Big as an axe, but nobody sees you. I got the same thing. Only ain't big. I just talk a lot and no one hears me. And something funny happens. I start whispering. Suddenly everyone hears me. You're not sick, are you? Your mother? That's tough. That's the toughest one. Except for losing a kid. Watching a kid die. That is it. That's the toughest one. 
you sick? Well, they say I'm getting better, but I don't buy the green bananas anymore. They just want me out of here. I I was worried because David Patrick Kelly, like other things I've seen him in, he's he's quite big performances. He can turn it up, quite, can't he, yeah, if he, he can needs be, to. <laughs> he can be gratingly eccentric at times. Mm. But he's really, really nicely balanced in this. It's kind of the, this balance of, of brashness and introspection is the notes I've written here. Yeah, he, he, he seems scared, I think, which I really like. He seems really nervous and scared about being in hospital. They keep telling him that he's going to get better and he's going to leave. And then the next thing is we see him, yeah. you know, like I say, convulsing. It's like, wow. That, that line that you flagged up before, you know, you're as big as an ox and no one sees you. I mean, you could you could put that as a tagline for the movie. It's a brilliant line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stepping back slightly, I, the last scene with, with Dolly um, gives you some really interesting information. She's saying that, um, you know, she's quite tearful. She's saying that after after Pete died and Vic started to grow up, she, she it felt like, you know, like Pete was still around again. And you sort of get a, a, a bit of a sense of, the fact that she's never allowed him to be his own person. He's always been a replacement for her dead husband. Yeah, but she's also terrified that he's going to leave too, and then she'll be completely on her own. Mm. And there was um, some of the, the best use of music I've, I've ever seen in this. I only noticed it this time around. You got like a kind of drone builds up, and it comes in from the very end of um, the grey man's scene. Yeah, and then yeah. it builds and builds all the way through from from Vic, you know, finding that his mother's died without being told, and then going back to Pete and Dolly's and yeah, going back to the bar. It's, yeah, yeah, in, in I, this I kind of too. in this kind of the way it's fluctuating vision. in and out. Wah, wah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, um, and you know, just the terror building up as he as he realizes he hasn't got it in him to to tell people what's happened, and then going and, and eating in the back room. It's yeah, just... yeah. and there's a nice little detail. Uh, within that sequence, really nice little bit of of use of shots and cutting. Um, it goes to almost like a point of view shot, doesn't it? Yeah, you've got a, a nice kind of tracking shot, kind of coming into the bar, and then a reverse point of view, um, and then you get like these three cutaways of empty spaces and doorways before you get to Vic eating alone in the back room. It's just <laughs> the, just those three little shots emphasize kind of how how alone he is. Yeah, yeah, just subliminally. I said subliminally. <laughs> you said it. Was it just me, or did the scene where Dolores takes Victor to watch the planes taking off, did that remind you of Wayne's World? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, maybe subconsciously, but yeah, I know what you're saying. I, I just found it, I know it's not fair, but I found it a little bit, kind of, I found her a bit creepy in... <laughs> in the scene i know she's trying to be compassionate but yeah well no it, just... it's it's a creepy moment because she's trying to reassert some sort of control over vic hmm. she she wants to be the center of attention and she wants you know she realizes that he has a crush on kelly and she wants to kind of realign things and she's willing to do that in order hmm. to realign things it's it's slightly odd you know and even if it even if it is compassionate which i don't think it is she still can't help herself at the end with that like that nasty line while you're saving yourself for someone special. And I'm wondering also, because it's strongly inferred that, that Dolores had slept with Pete some 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, because Dolly had said earlier that she thought of, of Vic as like kind of partly as kind of like a replacement for Pete as he was growing up. I wonder if there's something about Victor that reminds Dolores of Pete also. Oh, yeah, maybe. Mm. 
she's attracted to him, like possibly genuinely attracted to him in that way, but it's it's quite subtle and quite ambiguous. We get a little section where uh, Victor has picked up his mother's possessions from the hospital, and on the way home he takes a tour of the chef's school that his mum had previously said he does, doesn't need to go to. So maybe, you know, I don't know if he ever ends up at chef's school, but I think at this point, he feels yeah, he confident really. enough to just go for a tour and to kind of open his mind to other opportunities or just even just a little bit more ambition. So even if he doesn't go to chef school, maybe he'll upgrade the menu sometime at the at the diner. You know, yeah. who knows? But it's just acknowledging there are other horizons. Yeah, and and that he's you know lifting his eyes up from wherever he is to maybe explore his options. Kelly and Dolores finally almost come to blows at the bar. Kelly, we're not really kind of giving her much coverage here. She has things going on in her life. She's unhappy with her life generally. She's has a fractious relationship with her boyfriend and she may well be pregnant by him. So she has a lot on her plate. Um, and Dolores can't help the odd cutting remark here or there. Kelly finally reacts and it, it all gets a bit heated. But this leads into... Um, very strange kind of interesting moment with Vic trying to it's kind of a gray area between comforting her and kind of indulging his attraction to her isn't it yeah yeah I mean I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because he is kind of childlike I th- I think it's a, a genuine attempt at soothing and comforting someone but also you know he's let's say he's pushing a little part of himself his his hands into her private space yeah which say... actually sounds like a terrible <laughs> metaphor doesn't he he's, he's pushing a part of himself into her private space but you know, he basically <laughs> he's, stro- he wants, he's, he's stroking he strokes her, hair, her hair it's well yeah. meant and affectionate but but watching it today it doesn't play out all that comfortably does it it's well it's... It, it doesn't until she takes his hand and like lays her her head into it a little bit like she appreciates the gesture and knows and understands that it's a kindness it's compassionate and it you know yes he's attracted to her but it's not like a pervy gesture so i think her reaction justifies it yeah and there's you know as this is something we mentioned earlier there's moments of empowerment for victor here where he's he's you know, in, intermittently kind of find finding his own voice this bit where he confronts dolores and <laughs> yeah can't you be nicer to her nice did you hear what she said to me you don't you don't have to be nice just be nicer or what what or what victor or i'll fire you Last I heard, your mother still ran this place. Uh, after Victor has confronted Dolores, Callie's on the phone outside trying to get Jeff to pick her up. Yeah, Victor's shutting and, up for the night, isn't he? Yeah, and Leo and his drunk mate confront him and they sort of push him around and slap him around a bit. Um, and then Victor just leaves. They leave and then Callie gets in the car with Victor. And again, it's it's, it's very uncomfortable watching because Victor Victor takes her to watch the planes take off, and I think he's he's sort of trying to recreate the situation with Dolores, but with somebody that he's actually in love with. And it's difficult to watch, and it's even 
even more difficult to put all the grey areas into words here. Yeah. Because yeah. there's there's so many troubling motivations on both sides here. She's obviously has a lot on her plate and is is kind and nice to Victor, but she's still, you know, within her own world. So I, I wonder if if the way that she indulges him is is necessarily the right thing to do. But have we at this point we've had the scene where she's looking f- through her photos and she has a picture of herself and a picture of him that she puts side by side to s- kind of see how they look as a couple. You know, I think she is kind of open-minded to Victor and she does say to him, you know, you're a big guy and there's more of you to love. You know, I think I think they're as open-minded about maybe having a relationship as each other. It's not, you know, she, yes, she is on paper better looking than him you know but i think one of the subtexts of this relationship is that she knows that victor's decent and she could have a decent life with him but that would be it she would be trapped here forever now and that's what he kind of represents and i think that's why i think she's open-minded to it but when he he's lied to her she finds out when dolly's dead and i think that sort of kind of childish response is one of the things that helps her make a decision to keep moving with her life and not stay still so when they they do say their goodbyes you know she's reluctant and has a connection to victor but she knows that to get stuck here is the end basically that's yeah she would she would become dolly or dolores and I, th- I think she wants more than that. It's quite interesting that the next scenes are where Vic takes her to, well, she thinks she's going to visit Dolly in hospital, but in fact, he's taking her to the graveyard. Yeah. Um, e- even for somebody who's not good at expressing himself, it's a very clumsy way of, of doing things. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it's interesting that when, when they're in the car together, you get one of those scenes where, you know, she is clearly much, much younger than him and, and much more yeah. part of, the outside world, you know, she puts a shit song on the radio and starts singing along to it, and mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, I love these guys, you yeah, know, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and he's just he has he has no comprehension of it at all. The whole of pop culture is something that is just outside his experience. Yeah, yeah, and it plays up the differences between them there even more. And I guess you know that kind of brings their whole relationship thing to a head in within those two scenes, doesn't it? That's yeah, that's the end yeah, of it. it's re- it's really nice because. You know, you see that she is clearly upset that Dolly has died, but also that Victor has hid it for so long without telling anyone. Mm. And she's, you know, she's, I want to say strops off, but she, you know, she kind of, she walks away from the graveside, clearly upset by the realization that Dolly's dead and that Victor's lied and doesn't hear him say, oh, I, d- I didn't want anything to change, mm. you know, which was his kind of, his reason for keeping it secret. And it's great that the movie, you know, ties up their relationship, but their relationship, it's central to the film, but it's not all that the film is. You still have to resolve Victor's self-confidence issues. It turns out that the the next scenes are where Leo and then Dolores find out that Dolly's dead. Hmm. I thought it was really great the way that this kind of happened after hours. So it gave you an excuse to to, to light the scene in this kind of hellish neon red. Yeah, as, yeah. as Vic finally finally descends into the hell that he's been dreading for for weeks. I love it that he's made a pizza for himself, but cut it into like really tiny, tiny pieces, mm. like like you would for a child. Yeah. <laughs> it's great as well that from that graveside scene, the entire film pretty much wraps up that evening. <laughs> None of these lives are over. We just, this is the point 
where we see them to a certain point and then we step out and let them continue you know god knows what they're up to now you know that's how you feel about those characters you know it's really nice that you get a sense of relief um when you finally cut out of victor's final scene in the bar uh when you cut to the mailbox in the sort of natural morning light it's a genuine kind of visual relief as well as an emotional relief to get back yeah, to well, that's it. That the world light. the world keeps going doesn't it you yeah. know the world keeps turning you know victor He's got his grief and, you know, his lost lost love and all of these experiences that he's had. But, yeah, the world keeps turning, so he has to kind of just get up and get on with it, you know. And you see almost straight away there's an opportunity maybe to meet somebody else. And, you know, now that he has the confidence to talk to someone, you know, maybe that, that's all the difference. That's all he needed, that little, that little confidence boost to join the world, to step out from his mother's smothering shadow. In the final scene in the grocery store, I mean, there's there's moments in this which, like, like the scene where he discovers that his mother has died, this, this as well is is something that could be could be written and performed and and put together in a in a straightforward expository way. But it's just really nice little little moments cut together, isn't it? You know, the yeah, yeah. the bottles overflowing from the fridge. There's being one refilled. he catches one bottle and he the way it sort of spins through the air and his hand whips around under it and catches it. It was just like, wow, amazing catch, dude. That was really cool. But you get, you know, this is effectively at the end, it's a meet cute, isn't it? Between him and, and yeah, yeah. who's working the counter. But because it's filmed at a distance, uh, it feels really natural. And it's actually, you know, it's got this magical point of view from a dog. Yeah, and then you kind of end. I thought it really made me laugh out loud this time around. The just the ingenuity of of ending on a dog's point of view, and then it looking up to see the plane passing over. See the plane, yeah, perfect really symmetry with the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's magic. This film. Yeah, it's really good. It's a it's a masterclass in kind of craftsmanship and subtlety, and and just having half a dozen people in one or two spaces living their lives for a brief moment and we kind of just dip in and out of that and somehow it makes us consider our own place in the world and our friendships and you know all of that stuff is you know it's it's fabulous having covered you know both this and nobody's fool in in more depth than you would with a casual viewing i know it's going to be at least 10 years away but i'm, I'm looking forward to a double bill of the two films one afternoon It'd yeah be really nice <laughs> yeah yeah that's it and i guess that that kind of covers it i mean it's not it's not a movie that requires two and a half hours of, of discussion and exploration. It's just a perfect little jewel, isn't it? I mean, this is the sort of thing that I think that if the dozen or so people who enjoy our podcasts <laughs> get anything out of the movie itself, that that's, I feel, we've kind of job done here. 